0: Good morning, church family. My Bible is open already to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We are studying verse by verse through this wonderful gospel. We come today to the 19th verse, a passage in which Jesus silences the spies. Now chronologically, the action of Luke 20 has us within just a few hours of Jesus' crucifixion. He is spending his final days on earth teaching on the temple grounds there in Jerusalem Last week we saw two parables that Jesus taught as he was there, we believe, on the temple grounds. Uh, One was the parable of the vine growers. Remember, a landowner had come into an agreement with some tenant farmers that at the end of the harvest time they were to settle up. And so he sent his servants, one after the other, to receive what was due to him. And each time they were met with the same fate, the tenant farmers beat up those that he had sent and sent them away empty-handed and finally said, I will send my son. They will respect him. But they did not. Of course, they killed the son and cast him outside of the city, which of course was a prophecy. Jesus was speaking of his own life that would surely soon be ended by his enemies. And then he finished that uh, parable with another brief parable about a cornerstone. And the stone which the builders had rejected had become the chief cornerstone. Again, he speaks of himself. And he says, uh, those that fell upon the stone would be broken, but those upon whom the stone would fall would be uh, scattered like dust. Well, there were religious leaders in the crowd listening to Jesus at that time. And those two parables cut them to their core. Now you almost need a program at this point to keep up with all the characters that were plotting against Jesus. You you had various groups and individuals. Um, Chief among them were the Pharisees. These were the religious conservatives of the day. Jesus had reserved his harshest criticisms for this group. You had the Sadducees, who were the religious traditionalists. They were theologically liberal, whereas the Pharisees were theologically conservative. You had the chief priest, which is a family of priests who controlled much that went on in the city of Jerusalem. They had lots of power over the people. You had the elders, who I believe to be part of the Sanhedrin, the governing body, judicial branch of the government. You had the scribes, who were likely Old Testament lawyers and and judges. And you had a group called the Herodians who were loyal to King Herod and therefore uh, the Roman way of life. And so all six of these groups were at odds with one another at any one time in history, but they have become united because of their common hatred for Jesus. If you read the Bible, it's hard to understand why people would hate Jesus. Why were they so determined to get rid of him? I think for three or four reasons. Number one, he had embarrassed them by laying their hypocrisy bare for all to see. This was particularly true of the Pharisees, who liked to think of themselves as the upper echelon of Jewish society. That is, they were closer to God, they thought, than any other group. In fact, that word Pharisee means separate from others. And that's how they thought of themselves. And Jesus brought them down to earth. He called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed sepulchres. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. He, he at times took away their power and authority over the people. In fact, in the case of, of the Sadducees, he had taken away some of their profit from manipulating and misusing people on the temple grounds. And then I think that the primary reason they had Jesus was simple jealousy. He was more popular among the people than they were. In fact, the people used to remark that Jesus taught as one having authority. His teaching was different and distinct than uh, those who had gone before him and the people loved him for it. The Pharisees uh, judged the people and looked down upon the people and uh, the the people didn't like that, of course. And then, then there's another reason that we find here towards the end of Jesus' life and that was fear of the Romans. There was a sort of tenuous peace at the time that Jesus came along in and around Jerusalem. Uh, Though most Jewish people didn't like the fact that the Romans charged them high taxes and governed over them. At least they had improved the road system and uh, there there was an absence of warfare. And and so there was this tenuous um, agreement between the religious leaders and the Romans to stay out of each other's way. But there was a fear that if someone lit a match to this powder keg and started a revolution that the Romans would come down severely and many lives would be lost. That's what the thinking of Caiaphas was, who was the chief priest at this time. He said, it is expedient for one man to die. Now he didn't understand that he was prophetically speaking of Jesus' substitutionary atonement. He thought if we can get rid of Jesus it will spare many lives if there were to be a revolution. Now, the original plan that these six groups had hatched together was to kill Jesus quietly after Passover, after the the two million people had gone back to their hometowns and villages, Um, and yet Jesus kept pushing the envelope. He had entered the city, remember, as a triumphal king through the Eastern gate of Jerusalem, uh, to the applause and adulation of the people. They laid down branches and coats in their path, and he received their worship as a conquering king. Uh, then he, he went to the temple and he chased out the money changers and the sellers. And then he embarrassed them day after day in the temple through his teachings and, and through his parables. So what, what could they do? Well, that they hatch a plan to expedite the killing of Jesus. And so it says in verse 19 of chapter 20, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. That is, they scrapped the original plan to wait until after Passover and they were ready to do it at that moment. Well, let's read our text today. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. So they watched him, that is his enemies. And they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. And they questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. They were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his inerrant and inspired word. The first thing we see right away in verse 19 is it's two edges or two edges of the same blade. Um, These enemies of Jesus, hatred of him had become overwhelming. And that kind of hatred is a dangerous thing. You see, it's, it's a two edged sword. They wanted him dead and they wanted him dead now. And yet on the other side, he was incredibly popular. If they let their anger get the best of him and just seized him and and killed him immediately, uh, the people would turn on them and and, and they feared the people. And so you can add to all of the other negative qualities and attributes of the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus often pointed out. He said they were hypocritical. That is, they put burdens on people as far as the law that they themselves did not live up to. They were narcissistic. That is, Jesus said they loved the place of honor. They loved the greetings in the marketplace. They were greedy. That is, they loved money, Jesus said. And to all of that, you you can add, they were cowardly. And so the enemies of Jesus were hypocritical, narcissistic, greedy, cowards. They were evil people, but they were not stupid. They understood that the parables that Jesus taught about the vine growers and the cornerstone were directed towards them. He said that the father, the the landowner, is going to take away their ability to rule over the vineyard, the vineyard being Israel, and he's going to give it to others. That is, he's going to replace them. And they understood what he was saying was about them. And so they hatch a plan. And that's the second point on your outline, two faces of the spies. Look at verse 20. So they watched him. That is, wherever Jesus went, they had eyes on him. And they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. Now, Jesus had been dealing with many of these enemies of his for years, probably knew many of them by name, of course, being God, he knows all things. But from their perspective, they needed to send someone who he was not as familiar with. And so I take it they, they hired some people, likely some play actors. And, and that's an interesting play on words because the word hypocrite, which was Jesus' favorite designation for the Pharisees really was a theatrical term. It means one who wears a mask, a two-faced person. In other words, a duplicitous person, one who pretends to be one thing, but in reality is another. And that's exactly what these spies were. They, They pretended to love and admire Jesus. They compliment him over and again, but the truth is they wanted to see him dead. Their purpose Luke explains was to catch him in a verbal trap through their questions, to catch him in some statement that could be held against him. The saying is that you can catch more flies with, with honey and vinegar. And so they put that into practice. But what they really want to do, Luke says is to turn him over to the governor. In that case would be Pontius Pilate, which of course, ultimately they did, because they knew that they had no authority to take a life. They did not have the authority of capital punishment. And they had already, this shows us, reached a verdict and passed sentence on Jesus. Now all that was left was to find a crime that they could charge him with. And so they want to give the pretense that the coming death of Jesus was just and legal. That is the essence of hypocrisy. They're using schemes and lies and intrigue to devise an illegal killing And yet they want to give the appearance that it was just, and legal and fair. It was anything but. And as we saw last week, really, the death of Jesus was a murder. And so these spies infiltrate where Jesus was teaching in the open square and and they tried to pass him off as admirers, though they ultimately hated him. Verse 21 says, they questioned him. And Jesus was taking questions, apparently from the audience as a way of life. And so it came their turn to ask the question. And they say, teacher, they use that title of of rabbi, a term of endearment and honor. We know that you speak and teach correctly. You're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Now this is simply flattery. Psalm 12 says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Flattery is simply a form of dishonesty or lying. And we know that in the 10 commandments, God has forbidden lying. In fact, the Bible says he hates a lying tongue. But but there are a number of ways to lie. We can just tell a bold faced lie, a whopper, or we can dilute the truth. We can hold back things that are important to the truth, or we can add things that are superfluous to the truth. And we have other ways of lying as we interact with people. Two ways that we use dishonesty to manipulate people are gossip and flattery. Gossip, as one person has said, is saying things behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. And flattery is the mirror of that, which is flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. And that is exactly what these spies are attempting to do. They're trying to butter Jesus up and flatter him and take him off guard so that he'll let down his offenses, defenses, so that they can catch him in a verbal trap, something they can accuse him with to the Romans. But of course, Jesus, as always, saw right through their ruse. And there, there's an interesting irony here. Look, look at what they said to Jesus. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. You're not partial to any, and you teach... The way of God in truth. Everything they said about Jesus is absolutely true. They just didn't believe their own words. And by the way, sometimes people ask me and and our other pastors here, how can we pray for you? And we certainly appreciate all the prayers, especially in these days that have been offered. And I typically say pray for our wisdom because we need it. But I think verse 21 should serve as a goal and an ambition for any pastor. And these are things you can pray for us. We want it said of us, the pastors of First Baptist Keller, first, like Jesus, we speak and teach correctly. That's what I pray as I'm preparing the sermon. Lord, help me to rightly divide the word of God. We never want to teach or say anything about God that is less than true. And then, and then secondly, may it be said of us that we're not partial to anyone really what it says in the Greek, that Jesus didn't look at the face. That is before he answered people or told them something, he didn't see what their status in society was. He treated everyone the same. May that be true of our pastors. And then finally, you teach the way of God, which I take to be the gospel in truth. The gospel is ever on our lips and we tell the whole counsel of God. That's the mark that your pastors aim at. And please pray that that we'd hit that mark. There's a third point to be made here, and that is uh, two horns of a dilemma. Look at verse 22. Finally, they get to their question after all the flattery. Is it lawful for us? And I take uh, the antecedent of us to be Jewish people. Is it lawful for Jewish people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And I can almost sense the smile coming over their faces before they finish the question because they think they have finally put Jesus into checkmate. Remember they were surrounded by many ears who would be listening for Jesus response. It's a question that was on a lot of people's minds in those days because the Romans, of course, were pagan people. They worshiped false gods. They required taxation of the people. And that tax revenue went back to Rome and it went to support lifestyles and policies that the people fundamentally disagreed with and hated. And so the question is, is it right for us in the eyes of God, is really what they're asking, to pay our taxes. Well, here's the dilemma. They thought if Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, then the people who hated the Romans would turn on him. He'd lose his popularity. The people chafed under Roman authority and this specific tax that he's speaking of here was the poll tax. It was the tax that every adult Jew had to pay every year for the privilege of being alive. They had to pay their taxes in a specific form of currency called a denarius, which was equal to the average pay of a day laborer for one day's work. It was the only way to pay it. You had to convert your currency or your produce to denarius to to pay it for the privilege of living in the Roman empire. And to make matters worse, to add insult to the injury, the coin was stamped with the image of the Caesar at the time, which happened to be at the time of Jesus, a man by the name of Tiberius, who followed after another one of the Caesars that uh, was the Caesar at Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus. And on that coin, there was an inscription that declared Tiberius to be the sovereign. That is the one to whom everyone owed allegiance. And beyond that, it declared him to be the son of the divine. He was claiming deity for himself. Really what he was saying that everyone who lives in the Roman Empire is my property. And so the people chafed every time they had to drop that denarius in the tax box. And so these spies thought they had Jesus trapped. If he says, don't pay your taxes, the Romans, of course, would arrest him. If he says, yes, pay your taxes, the people would turn on him. And what the enemies of Jesus really preferred is that he would say no. And then they would have a reason to run to Pontius Pilate, the governor, and say, this man is an insurrectionist. He needs to be put to death. But the response that came from Jesus stunned them. In fact, it stunned them into silence. They were too stunned to speak. Look at verse 23, when he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius, that little coin that that bore Tiberius image and his inscription. And so Jesus as he often did, answered a question with a question. Here's Jesus' question. Whose likeness and description does it have? Now, the fact that they would have these coins in their pockets tells us that even though they hated paying their taxes, they were doing it. And they were enjoying, of course, the benefits of being under Roman authority. As I said, they built good roads. They kept up the, the sewer systems. In some ways they improved life. There, there was peace and stability in the land. And yet it was a tenuous peace at best. At any moment, it could be upset. And so Jesus says, whose image is on this denarius? And they answered Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now, what Jesus was saying was profound, and its profundity was not lost on those people. In fact, what Jesus said was so profound, you have heard this statement repeated right up until this good day as it relates to the church's relationship to the civil authorities. I think at its core, what Jesus is saying is that this world system bears the image of Caesar. There's no getting around that. Christians don't have a lot of authority and power in the world. We, we live in a system in which there are those over us as there were in the Roman days who don't share our values and our belief system. And yet Jesus acknowledges that, that we have to live in that sort of world, but it harkens back to the book of Genesis, which says that God's highest creation is man. And, and the reason that man is to be viewed at God's highest creation Because only of man does the Bible say that he is made in the image of God. The reason that we are pro-life among others here at this church is that all human beings are image bearers. They bear the image of God and, and therefore have an incredible worth and value. So Jesus is saying, look, those things of this world that are temporary and passing away those bear the image of Caesar who by the way is also temporary and passing away. And just like his predecessor, Caesar Augustus, who claimed to be God, he's dead and gone. And in just a few years, Tiberius would be dead and gone. And someone would take his place. And the Roman empire one day would be delegated to the scrap heap of history. And yet your relationship with God is eternal. Christ is once again, in a wonderful way, declaring that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not like the Romans, he's not like the Greeks or the Babylonians or any of those great empires through history, his kingdom is forever. And for those who bow their knee to him and his sovereignty, the benefits of being citizens of that kingdom are forever. And yet we still have to live in this world And though our home is truly in heaven, we are temporarily strangers and aliens and wayfarers passing through this life. And so how are we as Christians to relate to the government? Well, in Romans chapter 13, I encourage you to turn your Bible there now. Romans chapter 13, verses one through seven, the apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit expands on Jesus' parable. And this is what he says. Romans 13, one, speaking to Christians. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. So the basis of Paul's argument about how Christians are to relate to the government is that government is God's idea. That is as a concession to man's sinfulness and fallen nature, he gives to man government to suppress his depravity. Verse two, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed his will receive condemnation upon themselves for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but of evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same for it that is government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God. Again, he's speaking of human government. A minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also, hear this, pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You have to understand when Paul wrote those words, the person who was the most powerful government official in the world was an emperor named Nero. Tiberius had come and gone. Nero was now on the throne in Rome and he was a madman, literally, certifiably insane. One of the things that he used to do was uh, dip Christians in tar alive and set them on fire to light his garden parties. He was a evil and a deranged individual. And yet Paul says, even of Nero, we're to honor and pay our taxes. Now I can uh, almost perceive, (laughs) though there's no one in the room with me right now, some objections. Some are objecting. Now, wait a second, Pastor. I didn't vote for this administration or that past administration. I don't like their policies. In fact, I don't believe they're going to use this tax money wisely. Well, in the day of Jesus, that's exactly what was happening. Those are the same objections that that Joseph and Jesus' day had to paying the the poll tax. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar. In, In Paul's day, it was even worse. And he agrees with Jesus, pay your taxes. That is, submit to the authorities. And beyond that, Paul would later write, and pray for those who are in authority from kings and governors all the way down. Friends, I don't know how a text of scripture could be more relevant and apropos for our own day than this one. We we Christians have been faced with our own dilemma in recent months as the government has directed us uh, for the good of the rest of the citizens not to meet corporately. And I know that's been difficult on all of us because we know that the scripture says to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Now I will say this as it relates to obeying the governmental authorities, that there's a limit to that. Uh, we see this in the book of Acts. Shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter and John went down to the temple and and So they saw a crippled man there and he asked for money from them for alms and Peter said, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have, we give unto you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man was healed. And it caused such a commotion in the temple grounds that they were brought before the authorities and commanded not to preach any longer in Jesus' name. And Peter spoke up and said, you judge between us, is it right to obey God or man? And so I take from that, that we are to obey the government up into two criteria. Number one is that is the government forces us to do what God forbids. And the second is if the government forbids us to do what God commands. I've told you before, if there is not a revival and a spiritual awakening in this country, I suspect there may come a day when preachers such as myself may have to go to jail for preaching the truth. I pray that doesn't happen. I don't look forward to that. But if the trajectory of this country doesn't change, I fear it might. And I hope and pray that I will be willing on that day to go to jail or worse. But there is no credit to any Christian who disobeys the government in a way that is displeasing to God. And as your pastors uh, looked at these uh, governmental orders Uh, we came to the conclusion that it would not be in accordance with good citizenship and it would not be in accordance with our conscience to violate those orders and, and meet anyway. Now, I know there are some churches and pastors who've done that. The Lord will judge between them and us. This is what we have felt led to do and we believe that we're on sound biblical footing doing it. Now, if they ever say to us, you can't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it offends people, we stand ready to go to jail. And let me take it a step farther. Some of you have wondered if our church has participated in the government programs to help out not-for-profits such as churches in times like these, known as the PPP program, which is the Payroll Protection Program. And for transparency's sake, I want to tell you no. We have elected not to participate, not only in that program, but in any government relief program. And again, we're not standing in judgment on other churches who have, but based on our understanding of the word of God and based on the Lord's provision for his church in the past, we believe that the primary way in which God has provided for the ministry and maintenance of his church is through the selfless, sacrificial, generous giving of his people, Christians. Specifically, First Baptist Church of Keller is 138 years old this year, which means that uh, this congregation has survived two world wars, a great depression, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina. And we believe shortly we'll be able to say that the Lord preserved us through the COVID-19 lockdown of 2020. And up until this point, the Lord has always provided for his church. We're thankful to live in, in a land where we have freedom to, together as we have traditionally done for these 138 years. And, and for this brief time in history, we've been separated. And yet, thanks be to God, we're able to, to meet together each week through the miracle of technology. No one has forbidden us from speaking the name of Jesus in this place. And yet, our conviction is the Lord is going to preserve us not through some outside agency, not through the government, but he is going to maintain us through the faithful and generous provision of his people. And so that's why we do what we do here. That's the conviction of our heart. And I felt like you need to know that and understand that. We have two full months left on our annual budget. And it is my prayer that when we look back in history, we'll see that the Lord not only met our needs, but he, through his people, was able to give above and beyond even what we had planned to do. And when he does that, we're gonna be very careful, very careful, to give him all the glory and honor and praise. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we stand in stunned amazement as surely the people of Jesus' own day did when he spoke these incredible, wise, and poignant and relevant words. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But we owe to our government loyalty. We owe to them honor. We owe to them obedience up until the point that they compel us to disobey you. Help us to be good citizens, Father. Grant us wisdom, especially in these days where there are so many important decisions to be made. But Father, we know ultimately, though we owe taxes to the government, we don't owe worship. In fact, we are image bearers of our Creator. And to you alone do we owe ultimate allegiance and submission and fidelity. And so, Father, help us to live our lives, as the scripture says, with our eye to heaven, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, as we are temporarily passing through this world, help us not to be so heavily invested in it that we become distracted. Help us to live our lives and order our days in such a way that our lost friends and Neighbors recognize a different way of living and thinking and prioritizing our lives. Father, most of all, we, we pray that we would indeed represent you clearly and distinctly here in a lost and dying world. Lord, we pray that what was said of Jesus would be true of us, that we would teach rightly, that we would not be respecters of men, and that we would always have the gospel upon our lips. And Father, when that happens, again, we'll give you the praise for it. Thank you for it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.